Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, we are just getting back from NWTF convention, and uh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm so tired. Jacob, how are you doing? Oh, doing well. Doing well. You got a hard workout on today, and now I'm kind of regretting it a little bit. Might, might have overdone it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Overdone it's like, it come, back, come back with a little bit of a cold, <clears throat> and then you go work out, and I'm like, I'm like, I need some more caffeine. But other than that, no, doing good. What did you think about NWTF this year? It was, uh, I'd like to know the number of people that came because it seems like they broke the attendance record. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they did or not, but it was very, there's a lot of people. Yeah, I'll say by far the busiest Thursday and busiest Friday I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I think we've been going to the show, I think six years now, seven, six, seven. Yeah, I think the first year I went was 2017. Yeah. I've been going every year since then, and uh, yeah, man, it was it was pretty wild. There was a lot of people. We got to run into some listeners. We appreciate everyone who we got to run into. That was a good time. Uh, so, yeah, man, it was it was a fun show. If you didn't go, you missed out big time. And if you didn't go, you probably didn't see this, but Vortex just released their new Defender ST Red Dot, which is a pretty sweet red dot. We actually got it a couple weeks ago, and uh, they released it at NWTF, which was pretty cool to kind of see the response from it. Freaking absolutely bulletproof uh not actually bulletproof don't shoot the thing <laughs> it does have a vip warranty but you know don't shoot the thing but uh definitely uh i don't know if i'm gonna say bomber don't get don't be in a place where you get bombs going off but very tough red dot so i'm really excited to run that sucker on their, on our shotguns this spring because uh we were actually went out when we get back from nwtf we actually took the red dots out not these we had our uh well took our red dots out my shotgun with the red dot actually shot quail and uh, <laughs> yeah it was pretty fun i'm not gonna lie uh so <laughs> get that sucker mounted up and get ready to roll because dude turkey season is coming upon us every time mm-hmm. we get to nwtf it's like right around that window of time we're like oh man you know thinking some turkeys you know you get some warm days happening mm. and all of a sudden you go and it's like switches flipped yeah 100 percent ready man. to roll yeah, I was like, I, I was talking about the last day of deer season. Um, me and Tiffany went out and hunted that morning. Actually, me and Tiffany and Piper went mm-hmm. out and hunted that morning. And we went out there, and it was like kind of warm right there at daylight, and the birds started chirping, you know, right right at gray light. And I was like, oh, man, I kind of like sat up in my seat a little bit and was just listening because I was like, oh, they might gobble this morning because last day of season here is February 10th. So pretty late. You know, it's not uncommon to hear uh, birds gobbling in February. I mean, you can definitely hear it. And uh, I heard from a couple other people that morning that said that they heard birds gobbling. So I was like, I was kind of listening, didn't hear one, was kind of disappointed. But yeah, I've been getting excited for turkey season. But then, yeah, NWTF shows up and it just really flips that switch. Especially, I don't know what it is about it either. I think it's just uh, all the stories that you get Mm -hmm. to talk about with people about, you know, turkey hunts they had last year or just talking turkey with people it kind of reignites that flame and uh man it was very it was it was very interesting uh got got to go with a lot of people and uh and talk turkey but also got to go to a seminar it was pretty interesting a research seminar by dr craig harper out of uh tennessee 
yep. where they were essentially studying, University of Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> University of Tennessee out there in Knoxville. And they they studied the effects of a delayed turkey season on um I'm gonna I'm gonna kinda butcher it, but just to just to sum up Basically, nesting dates and nesting success, okay? So uh, we've had Dr. Chamberlain on the podcast, Dr. Michael Chamberlain on a couple mm-hmm. times, and, we, and we've done a good bit of talking about, you know, turkey seasons and I guess the decline in turkey populations. And one of the theories behind the decline in turkey populations is that we're killing uh, too many turkeys too early. So basically, like the way that the the pecking order works or the hierarchy works with turkeys, you know, all the boys kind of duke it out, and then you know the dominant gobbler goes and breeds his hens. And basically, the theory is, again, I might be oversimplifying a little bit, but you go out there and you kill that dominant gobbler, then they have to redo that pecking order. They don't just go out and start breeding hens, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, so it, in theory, you're pushing back the nesting date. So if hens are supposed to nest on Man, I should have taken the I should have took the date. Uh, the arbitrary date. This might not be any realistic date, but like let's say they're supposed to nest by like May twenty eighth or something. But now because because of like some kind of interference, now they're not initiating that nest until June fifteenth. Mm-hmm. Well, then that puts them uh, at a disadvantage because you have like weather events, you have extreme heat. Uh, those poults don't get to live. Um, as long basically in summer, like going into fall, they have a shorter amount of time between when they're hatched and when they go into fall. So there's like a lot of factors that decline their chances for survival because they 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 breed and they hatch at a certain time for a reason. Kind of like whitetails rut at a certain time because like in, especially in northern latitudes, they're wanting to drop those fawns at a certain time so they have basically time to get big enough to survive winter. Because if uh, if if they're like if they're too young and they go into a really harsh winter, say in like Michigan or Wisconsin or somewhere like that, a bunch of fawns are going to die. Mm-hmm. So they have to be born at like a you know a certain time to take advantage of that weather opportunity. Same thing with turkeys. Okay, <clears throat> so all that to preface that a bunch of states, based on past research, have started uh, pushing back turkey seasons. Like my whole life, it's been about March fifteenth that mm-hmm. we started hunting here in Alabama. Now, if you're a public land guy, it's April 8th. I mean, they pushed it way back. Uh, that's a, they like seriously cut into, you know, like when it starts. Now, it does end a little bit later as well. Um, so, but that, that pushing back that start date, there was a lot of mixed feelings on it. And, you know, a lot of people were upset about it. And basically, the study they did in Tennessee um, found that there wasn't really much of an effect by pushing the season back. So they had two counties that were uh, non-delay counties. So they, they opened at the same time, and they had two counties that were delay counties. And they tracked them for a total of six years. They tried to track it for eight years, but the the state actually voted and, and changed the law uh, to push turkey season back statewide. So the study kind of got cut short. Um, because those non-delay counties got delayed mm-hmm. after after six years of the study. But all that to say, and I, w- I would love to have Dr. Harper on sometime to talk about this, all that to say that basically what he found was the annual variation in like nest initiation dates. So like what date are the hens initiating their nest, most of the hens initiating their nest, or what... Uh, or like uh, hen survival or, or whatever. So those statistics, there's an annual variation in them. You know, it's not like they have a calendar and they're like, May 25th, we're nesting, you know? Um, 
so there's an annual variation. Essentially, what, what he was making the case of is through their study, they found that the delay didn't have an impact greater than the annual variability. Uh, variability. variability. So, so in other words, if the annual variability is like 4%, mm-hmm. they couldn't find a change greater than 4%, meaning no impact. So that's one study I'd love to have him on. It's an opposing viewpoint of like what we've talked about in the past. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. He also had some other statistics that he kind of threw in there at the end as like a kicker, where they uh, they surveyed two thousand hunters, over two thousand hunters in Tennessee, and they they surveyed them about their success rates. They surveyed them about their satisfaction with the delayed seasons and and whatnot. And uh, that was actually very interesting. I took some rough notes like as he was going. Um, oh, here's just like an interesting point that I missed. Uh, 50% of the hens nesting occurred on 7% of the landscape. So all like half of the nesting occurred on 7%. And that's just to demonstrate that there's like a, a lack of habitat. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the main driving factor behind everything, which, you know, most people would agree. Um, also 12% of nests that were in fields were destroyed by mowing. So, you know, if you, if you got a club or if you got land, and you got turkeys and you got overgrown fields, maybe don't mow during nesting season. <laughs> that's, I mean, 12%, that's a lot. Uh, okay, let's see. Hunter effort went down in delayed counties, but harvest was not impacted. So meaning uh, people didn't hunt as much, they didn't put as much effort in, but they killed the same amount of birds, which is interesting because uh, when they pushed that season back to April 1st, um, again, talking public land here in Alabama, when they pushed it back to that first week of April, back when they opened it on March 15th, it was always kind of tough those first couple weeks because mm-hmm. uh, the birds were always like really hinned up and yep. you know they weren't quite doing the thing yet. And really around April 1st, that's when at least a lot of people I knew started killing birds. So now you had it to where no one can even start hunting them until April 1st. So the theory was, you know, they're not pressured. So when you get out there on that first hunt, they're not pressured and they're ready to play the game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I felt like that too, actually with the delayed season that like you just had, uh, better success right off the bat. So, um, so it basically it increased hunter efficiency. Like people weren't putting in enough time, like they weren't putting in as much time as before, but they were still killing the same amount. So they were more efficient, but they still killed the same amount of birds. Uh, the average number of gobblers heard went down in the delayed counties and up in the normal uh, counties. So that was interesting. Uh, 62% of the hunters surveyed did not hunt in the last two weeks of season. That was interesting. Which I could see that for sure. Man, that was something we were talking about with turkey hunting. Yeah. In general, uh, it like the further you get in the season, a lot of people start dropping off. It starts getting hot. The bugs come out, and they're, or they're just not... You know, not into it. You know, they they went on their couple turkey hunts and well, they stopped hearing gobbles for a couple hunts. They're like, yeah. well, it's not worth. I'm going to go fish now. Yeah, and also, man, he had a good statistic. I missed it on taking the notes, but you would have loved this one. It was the statistics of how many, what percentage of hunters killed a bird, what percentage of hunters killed two, what percentage of hunters killed three, mm-hmm. and it's like exactly what you'd think it would be. Fifty some odd percent did not kill a bird, mm-hmm. and then you know, some odd percent killed one and of course the one the guys who were uh tagging out was like a very small percentage yeah, probably single percentile yeah it's like nine percent or so or something like that um and then also here's a here's a very interesting one that i want like people to roll around in their head a little bit uh they maintained a harvest of about 
30,000 turkeys a year. So the state of Tennessee killing about 30,000 turkeys a year, even after the bag limit dropped from four to two. So he had this placed on a graph and, you know, throughout the, uh, the eighties and nineties or whatever, that, that number was just going up and up as Turkey populations increased. Uh, it was going up and up and up. And then it kind of plateaued out around 30,000 birds a year, sometime in the two thousands. And basically it's just kind of hovering. It's going up and, you know, going above and below 30, but averaging out to about 30 K birds per year. That was when they had a four bird bag limit and then they dropped it to three, then they dropped it to two and it stayed right there. The only outlier year was 2020 when, uh, everyone was off for COVID and then it spiked, you know, and they killed a bunch, but that was also interesting that they changed the bag limit. It was four, it went to two and they killed about the same amount of turkeys. So that was interesting as well. Um, there was a lot of other stuff in it that I wish I could have got better notes on. He was moving pretty quick. And, uh, I was like, I was like two or three minutes late to it because they put it in just the weirdest place. And I, it took me forever to find it mm. in Opryland. Anyone who's been to Opryland knows how confusing that place is. And I know it pretty well. And it still took me a long time to find that room. Uh, so anyways, super interesting stuff. I'd love to get some comments, some feedback on what people think about that study. Do you agree with the delays? Do you disagree? Do you want to hear from Dr. Craig Harper on that? Uh, hit us up. I want to hear it. Uh, what do, you, do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, <laughs> interesting thing about it. so harvest rates never change. You know, it's still average out to roughly thirty thousand birds a year based off his study, but the bag limit went down. And I've heard a lot of people talk about, especially in the like the turkey hunting industry, that like reducing bag limits is not saving turkeys. Yes, like it's <clears throat> it's, it's not having effect because the 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 general population isn't killing a turkey. Yeah, and then the amount of people that are killing turkeys. Um, I wonder how that a- averages out per state. Like, I wonder what Alabama's like success rate is. So you said that's like roughly fifty six percent of people in Tennessee that turkey hunted or at least went on a turkey hunt mm-hmm. did not kill a turkey. Yeah, and it's like it might have been fifty one percent. It was something. It was in the fifties. But it, but still, and half the people that go don't kill a turkey. And it kind of goes. Uh, it's it's so fascinating. Now, also an interesting aspect. So. And it doesn't seem like they hit on that study, but like what's happening with the recruitment rate with Pults? Mm-hmm. Like, it, are they seeing a decline in, like, even though all these things are changing, are they seeing an increased stability or decline in Pults yeah. being produced? And also, how many eggs a hen's actually laying and the variability there, which that'd be pretty hard because I've heard somebody, it might have been Dr. Chamberlain actually talking about, it's kind of tough doing studies. Like and actually going out and seeing different nests because like when you introduce a foreign scent, just like a human going in there, it's something that also predators may kind of key in on and just like yeah. kind of check out. So like you're by going and checking a nest, especially if you checked it one time, multiple times, whatever, you're you're already hurting the the viability potentially of those eggs actually you know producing. Yeah. Um. So <clears throat> you know that makes it kind of tough, but. It, it's such a it's such a hot button topic, man. Like you know, some people are like, "Man, we need to reduce bag limits." Other people are like, "Dude, bag limits don't do it; doesn't make a difference." But it all, to be honest, it seems like maybe it's not the issue everywhere, mm-hmm. but at least in the southeast, the biggest issue is habitat loss for that habitat that they're specifically wanting to nest in. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, and and actually, that's like uh, that's my opinion on it too like again i'd like to have these guys on and talk to them i'm not a biologist i'm not a researcher but all i can do is take what these people are saying 
and process it mm-hmm. and use my own logic, you know, and try to figure out uh, what I think of it. And I guess what I think is like when it comes to the delayed season and everything, um, it's it, it seems like with that we're like the tail's wagging the dog a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, could it be a problem? Like, maybe. But, like, to me, it seems fairly obvious that the problem is habitat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got... And, and you know, Harper opened up his thing with the fact that it's habitat. Uh, timbers manage different. Family farms are managed different. A lot of family farms are getting turned into subdivisions. Um, so, I mean, there's less habitat for turkeys to exist on, mm-hmm. you know? So, I don't know. It, I would... I would love to have the guys on to talk about it. Yeah, you know, I think it'd be a very interesting conversation. Uh, you know, that that's the thing, again, kind of going back, and we mention them all the time, both uh, Cal, or Kyle and Alan, Kyle Leibarger and Alan Summerford, who's been on the podcast a whole bunch. Uh, Alan's with Land and Legacy, Kyle's with Native Habitat, Native Habitat Project, and Alan actually kind of floats back and forth and works with both organizations. Uh, you know, talking about, like, having, like, really good quality early successional habitat, but mm-hmm. stuff that, like, both Polts, like turkey poults, but also like quail can like navigate through it is yeah. like super critical. And that's like the implementation of fire, but also like managing your timber in a specific way where it there's, there's a fine line of maximizing timber revenue and declining and like hurting wildlife populations. Yeah. And then also like offering a benefit to the wildlife populations by maybe not having as thick a timber stands, mm-hmm. but then losing out potential on some revenue because mm-hmm. you have less, it's not basil, is it basal area? I keep using the wrong term. Just, I mean that that I mean that's not really that's, the right term. Well, anyways, <laughs> but just having less timber like per acre, less logs, you know, uh, you know, cuttable logs on. You know, well, I mean, per yeah, acre I guess basal area could yeah could be used for it, but yeah, but that's like it's like a fine line you got to kind of navigate. And I think really, I'll be honest, where the hot where the pressure needs to be put on from all turkey hunters is these timber companies. Yeah, no, I that's that's what I'm just like we mentioned on Monday's episode when we were talking about this deer study and Uh like kind of putting the pressure back on these timber companies that hey, is there is there a way we can kind of work together where y'all can still you know manage timber, get your money under timber, but we can manage it maybe slightly different, run some fires, maybe you know in some areas if it makes sense for them to do specific types of thinnings uh, to be able to allow more sunlight to come down and give us more cover, more food sources for the deer. Same thing for the turkeys. Yeah. I feel like this is, comes directly back to the hunters. Again, voicing your opinion directly with these timber companies where, like, they mm-hmm. potentially – to me, if, if a couple timber companies – like, if you had Westervelt get on board, they're yeah. like, hey, we're going to start doing stuff a little bit different, try to help out with wildlife population while we're still managing for timber. Yeah. That could make a massive impact. Because yeah. there's such large property owners in the southeast. That, that's what I, that's what I'm getting at too. Because it's like, yeah, we can look at the delayed season thing, but it's like, okay, even if the delayed season and and also by the way, Harper in his thing, he did he did show the graph of their recruitment rates. Uh, I think it was I think the metric he used was hen survival, mm-hmm. and in basically in five of the six years he had graphed, uh, it was lower than the replacement rate. So meaning we're not they weren't making enough hens to replace themselves. Yeah. So less than one hen was like the replacement rate for five of those six years, yeah. which is like really bad. I mean, obvious like that that's a that's a declining population mm-hmm. in those counties. He also noted that that doesn't mean that it's statewide, mm-hmm. um, because there are plenty of people who say they they don't feel like populations are dropping at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. And uh, and so that that's good, but I, it's obviously going to be like a localized thing. But all that to say that um, that if if 
pushing the seasons back, it doesn't seem like it has like the effect we want it to. It seems like everyone should kind of focus their fire on the habitat issue. Well, I th- I, yeah, I think the whole pushing seasons back is one of those things that like states feel like mm-hmm. they're not going to get in trouble by doing so because they can blame hunters on not really. Oh well, yeah, bl- I mean really blame hunters on the issues that are being had. Yeah. But it based off like Craig Harper's findings. Uh, and I'm sure there's maybe some other studies ongoing right now that we don't know about because nothing's been published yet. Yeah. Uh, potentially can show it's not really the hunters aspect. Like the hunters aren't necessarily the ones hurting the population, but it's more about land use practices yeah. and what's being done there. And again, if you want to do large scale land management, public land's not the place to do it. Unless you're like in Montana, one of these Western states where like, you know, it might be 50% or 60% of the state's public land, or especially yeah. like the Southwest states, which is, it might be even higher than that. Compared to the, like the Southeast, specifically the Southeast, where probably most of our listeners and viewers and everybody's coming in from. I know some of you guys in the other parts of the country that listen and, and watch the show, but the biggest landowners down here are timber companies, yep. especially when you get in the deep South, it's timber companies. And, and those timber companies, you know, could do a lot. If, if you had the right people right people some of those organizations that kind of saw the benefit from a wildlife value standpoint mm-hmm. of like just what that brings into communities and areas along with how they can maximize their timber harvest rates but still be able to give back when it comes to like the, the wildlife management um that's where you're going to move the needle so much faster and efficient and efficiently than even just small landowners yeah. that have 100 200 acres <laughs> trying to do stuff um so i feel like the more that could be done where these different organizations like Turkish for Tomorrow, I'm sure these organizations are kind of trying to build relationships there, but like Turkish for Tomorrow, NWTF, and other organizations, having relationships and working relationships with some of these large timber companies mm-hmm. and try to help move the needle and the same thing getting state on board of like, hey, what could we do, guys? Is, is there a way we can kind of, you know, mm-hmm. how can we start running some more fires? How can we work on, you know, thinning some more? How can we incentivize that? A- absolutely. From a policy standpoint, how can we incentivize the timber companies to do that kind a- of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, because we can't just come to them and be like, out of the goodness of your heart and for, for the, sure for the good of turkeys, will you please make less money? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Know? So there has to be some kind of incentive there. And also, by the way, one way I've heard it put too is, you know, like I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say they're like trying to quote unquote blame the hunters, but I think it's more of the state agencies. Like this is how I've heard it put to me before. Yeah. They can't control what a timber company does. The Absolutely. only thing they can control is the regulations. Absolutely. So they're trying to control the regulations. I understand like the thought behind that, but also on the delayed seasons thing, for instance, mm-hmm. if if let's say 10 years down the road, there's a bunch more studies, and we know for sure that it does not work. Are they going to put the seasons back where they were? No, absolutely Probably not. not. Absolutely not. Probably not. So, <clears throat> you know, once it, once, they, once it moves, once it gets taken away, mm-hmm. then... It's probably gone. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why I'm like, hey, guys, let's maybe pump the brakes here a little bit on this stuff. Because I've heard people arguing for an even later start. Like, Alabama opened April 15th. Yeah. Which would be complete insanity, in my opinion. Like, that's just so that's so late, you know? Like, the, the March 25th on private land, like, that's probably a pretty good date. You know, I'd be fine, you know, keeping that date for sure. Uh, but, like, the, they keep pushing it back. Like, on public now, you can't hunt till April 8th. I, in I, a couple units, there's a it's, it's even later. It's like April 14th. I think that I I think that's 
terrible. I, I don't I don't like that at all. And you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there that disagree with me, but that's okay. We can disagree. Mm-hmm. And we still be friends. You Absolutely. Know? Uh but I just man, that's just so late. Especially for the again, the public land guy. Like it just sucks for the public land dude. And like I'm you know, lucky enough to have this club right here, mm-hmm. but for years I didn't have that. And, you know, when they started implementing that and pushing back all these season dates, it was like man, like, this sucks. Mm -hmm. Like, if you think this delay works, why are you only doing it on public? Why don't you do it on private, too, you know? It's it's the testing group. Yeah, they're they're using the public. Again, it's what they can control. That's the argument that they make. That's that's what they can control, you know, and study and, and whatnot. But, you know, I'd like to see the paper that came from it. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, it, it's it's super interesting. But, I mean, I, I think there's needs – like, just like we mentioned on Monday's episode, in a Monday's episode, trying to build a relationship, like, for individual hunting clubs with whoever their timber company they're uh, leasing that property from, like, hunting rights from, building a relationship there and, and getting some feedback whether or not, you know, you can try to work with the, the timber company, start running fires, figuring out what other kind of management strategy they have from a timber harvest standpoint, um, and, and just kind of running with that. And, and you actually got some feedback. Didn't you get NWTF from somebody with uh, Westervale or something like that? Or did, did, you, did you figure uh, something out? Yeah, somebody somebody uh, told me about some people at Westervale I could possibly contact. And uh, also, um, I, I was talking to um, our buddy Cody, mm-hmm. who we quail hunted with the other day. And he's in the club across the street as well as our club. And again, it's all Westerville. And I mentioned it to him, and he he said that their club president um, might have gotten permission to burn, but they haven't done it yet. So I want to talk to that guy and see what the deal is there, because I mean they're a big chunk. You know, they're they're twi- almost twice as big as our club. Mm-hmm. So if if they can burn, Dude, if they can burn, yeah. then we can for sure burn. I don't know if the guys in my club would be willing to do that. But it's the same land manager. It's the same timber company and same uh, like over, like the guy who oversees the property. The same guy. So that would mean that we can, and I think the other two clubs that are close to us could too. So this that's exactly what we were talking about. If we get that big co op going, basically where all these clubs all agree to you know start burning, doing this stuff, and we were talking to Cody the other day, kind of getting back onto the deer stuff. Uh, there's been a lot of timber cut on all these clubs around here. And you know we have that big ten point on camera. By the way, I'm staying in the club. Everybody, we got we got some questions and comments about it. And I, I was look, listen, I was on the board. I was I was on the fence about it. And then at the NWTF convention, which we talked about him earlier, Alan Summerford was like, "Hey man, Alan's like the nicest guy ever. Love the dude. Total total stud. Total <laughs> stud. I love the guy. He's like, man." You know, I was thinking, like, you really should probably stay in that club. And he was, like, very nicely told me, he's like, bro, stay in the club. And I was like, if Alan Summerford tells me to stay in the club, I'm staying in the club. Yeah, Al, what Alan wanted to say, but he's too nice to say, is you're an idiot if you get out of that club. <laughs> you got two years of history with it. What are you Dude. doing? Why are you going to start over again? Yeah, and, and yeah, people, again, need to go back and listen to Alan's episodes because uh, he kills, pro- like, out of out of just sheer, like, large bucks in Alabama mm-hmm. like I don't know if I don't know if anyone can touch what he does I mean he, he like man out, out of the 560 episodes we've done 559 whatever it is now out of all the people we talked to in Alabama as far as consistency goes like mm-hmm. man that guy is he gets it done Rock I was story. telling him that at uh, at the NWTF convention. So when he talks, I listen. Yep. So yeah, I'm for sure staying in it. But yeah. So what was funny? He told me that first, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I 100 percent agree because he was like, dude, y'all travel too much. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's, a, he's like, as much as y'all bounce around, I don't think I could ever kill a big deer bouncing around as much yeah, as you guys. Yeah, that's do. what he was saying. He's like, I don't think I could do yeah, it, he's, man. He, he's like, he's like, man, you need to learn one or two properties. Get your dates all lined up, which yep. we're going to talk about on a future episode. Yes. Get your dates lined up. Know when your dates are. And he's like, if the dates don't line up, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Go do something else. Yeah. You know, go go. Maybe maybe you can go mill around another place. But like, once you have those dates lined up, and you be on that property in those specific spots that you scouted out, that you know, you know when bucks are coming through during specific daytimes, um, and you hunt during that window. Yep. And you kind of maybe move to something else, but like you have specific date ranges when you hunt. And he's like, if you don't figure that out, you're always going to be trying to like, you know, shoot yourself in the foot, trying to always figure out the next thing, but you're never like compounding yeah, on what you definitely. could be learning. Definitely. Well, and so we just had that conversation with him and then we come back here and we start talking to Cody and we, we talk about the 10 point a lot, you know, now the season's over and, uh, and we're discussing like where we've seen him and everything, what the other guys in the club were saying. And you asked him something about uh, on the other club across the street, like what's a big deer for them. And he was saying, you know, 125, 130. But uh, there's a lot of new cutovers in this area. And this is something we've discussed a little bit in the past. So yep. they just cut some stuff on my club. They just cut some stuff on the club across the street. They cut a lot on one of the other clubs, and, you know, across the street. And Cody's property. Yeah, and Cody's property they cut. So And heat, dude. We might have to have him on just to talk about like his management strategy for that place. Because Kyle and I told him, I'm like, I need to introduce you to these guys. Because I'm oh, like, yeah. do you know them? Like, no, I don't know anything. What he's doing is going to be unbelievable in that mm-hmm. property. Oh yeah, unfreaking believable. <laughs> when he like five, like his five year plan is kill 115 inch deer on that property. Mm-hmm. And the area is definitely has the potential. It's just the lack of food and just. A, not a ton of deer, but just really lack of food and good quality cover. Yeah. Um, more food than anything. And what he's doing on that property is going to be unfreaking believable. Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors. And trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and Success Call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com. Use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. Well, it, and, it, and it plays right into this past Monday's episode with the MSU study that we mm-hmm. went over this past Monday on the genetics versus nutrition mm-hmm. and all that all that stuff that they're cutting, all those trees that they're cutting, open up the canopy, they're thinning pines, they're doing full clear cuts. Uh, that's going to produce so much more food that, and, and we had so many like young kind of up and comer bucks uh, on the property this year. And I know Cody had a bunch as well that they're all going to get that shot of of good brows and like a, a lot of food and the, all these new cuts. Uh, so it should be a good stretch of years. You know, it like we were talking, he was mentioning that five-year plan to kill a 150. Like I think, I think he could for sure do it in, mm-hmm. in five years, you know, especially with everything going on just again in the neighborhood. Well, and I told him, I'm like, there's people seven miles north of you, mm-hmm. eight, 10 miles north of you that kill 170s. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's like, why can't you, seven eight miles away why can't you do it on your property yeah definitely yeah i'm like great I'm, point i'm like the area can do it it's just having the right food and i mean just to be able to like relieve the stress from the deer like just like that study talked about like if a deer lives in a, a less stressful environment <clears throat> from food and social stresses which is just means too many deer and too many mouths on the landscape and they have ample amount of food throughout the whole year they can do some special things five ten years yeah, definitely. And uh, like I asked Cody about the doe population, because that's the other piece of the puzzle is, okay, do you have ample food, but do you have too many mouths to feed, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and he said he said no i think we're good and i agreed with that for sure um because that's what i was thinking kind of coming out of this deer season because it's not like you see a doe every single time you go hunt Mm -mm. um if you see does like every single time you go and you see a bunch of does you probably have too many does Mm -hmm. at least that's what i've been told and the bucks that we killed out there both my buck and mike's buck had a bunch of fat on Mm -hmm. especially my deer dude i mean he had like an inch of fat on his hindquarters Mm -hmm. i don't think i've ever killed a deer that fat outside of wyoming like what i those bucks we killed in wyoming were like very very yeah. fatty but over here the, the, those bucks yeah which bucks the buck the white tail and the mule deer well the mule deer don't really count don't no, worry about the mule deer well i'll say that, that white tail trip you the only one to kill remember that yeah that's right i'm still soft <laughs> that's right <laughs> but who's you know who's keeping track um, but no, I, I think it's going to be a, a, a really good couple of years, man. I'm excited. I'm excited about the, the future of these, these next couple seasons coming up, how it goes. I'm excited to see who all makes it through this year. We did have a uh, one, one buck. I don't know exactly which one it was, but I might've had it on camera that got run over. Wasn't the 10 point, but it was another younger deer, uh, that Cody found. So that one's, that one's dead. That's like my greatest fear at this point. I'm like, please don't get run over by a car. Yep. Because <laughs> he, he crosses the highway a good bit. So I'm like, please please don't get run over. Well, like, and also what Cody's doing, so he's got two different parcels that he owns. And the parcel that used to be like this little, uh, I guess, cotton field or bean field, whatever, that he bought. He's got timber on it. Yep. The What what he's trying to do out there and kind of get it back to not really a CRP. Like, he's not rotating anything, but like, just get it back to native grasses and everything. Yeah. And then also planting some um, plum thickets going across it. So you have like these travel corridors that you're like, you're able to manipulate and put it exactly where you want it, where you have like good stand sites where you can like shoot that, whether it's bow hunting or gun hunting, but also gives like cover that deer can like kind of, you know, like a habitat edge, those deer can kind of follow going from point A to point B across your property. Yep. Uh, I'm like, that's what, Anthony's trying to do it at the farm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's already some plums out there in little plum thickets, but, like, you know, trying to do it a little more widespread. And, but he's got a clean slate because part of that property is a big field. And he's like, I'm just going to let it go fallow. I'm going to manage it, going to burn it, get some more native species back because he's like, they pretty much killed the uh, the seed bed because it's been farmed for so long. And um, he's like, everything coming up right now in the field is all non native. Yeah. So he's like, it's going to be hard to kind of get that, you know, the seed bank built back up. And uh, probably going to take a really long process, but, you know, putting them plum thickets in and everything else, I'm like, dude, this place is going to be crazy. Putting in a duck hole and, oh, yeah. and everything. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put a crop. Oh, yeah, I think it was when you left. He's like, he's like, yeah, I'm thinking about building one next to the road right there, a pond next to the road, and he's going to put one further back. But he's like, the one close to the road, I'm gonna, he's like, I'm going to screen the whole road right there so you can't, like, see into the pond or anything or into the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, that might be a crappie pond. I'm like, I like the way Ooh. I like the way you think. Leave, leave the bass alone; it's still a crappie. Pump. Yeah, grow some trophy crappie. I like as, that. As the crappie guy say, you don't want none of those trash fish and <laughs> largemouth trash fish. Thanks, straight son. All right, uh, let's hit some Q and A's. Awesome. Let's get let's get on them. We're gonna hit some uh, deer Q and A's. We still got a whole bunch of them. Yeah, that we gotta absolutely. get through. So appreciate everybody that's been submitting Q and A's. Uh, again, there's a link down in the show notes and the show description on the podcast where you can actually submit your Q&As that will be answered on these Thursday episodes. Especially as we're getting into the springtime, we're going to be doing a lot more turkey content. First turkey episode comes out actually next Monday, guys. And we just lined up our next one. Yeah. Um, which is going to be really good. 
So, uh, but anyway, if you would, especially going to the spring, if you want to do like some postseason, um, you know, questions, postseason deer questions, uh, but especially if you have a lot of turkey Q and A questions, get those written in, and we're going to start answering those throughout this whole springtime. So, we're really excited to kind of answer some of those turkey questions as they start coming. But on this episode, we'll kind of get to some of these deer questions that still we still have, or actually, we start with turkey. No, we got we got some deer questions. Okay, we'll perfect. do. Uh, all right, this is from Tracy Brooks, Alabama. Killer, killer. He's been on the podcast killer. before. Young guy, just just I mean, killer. Got it. Uh, when do bucks typically break out of bachelor groups? As in, how many weeks before the peak rut? I had two nice bucks come by me this morning, running together, December twelfth. Uh, the peak rut here is January eighth through fifteenth. So I'll take this one first. I've been. A little bit curious about this myself because uh, it's it's not actually something I've considered that much in the past until this year. Uh, I think we opened November eighteenth was the opening day of gun season or nineteenth. It was the third Saturday in November, and I went out and had that encounter with the bachelor group. I had like four or five bucks come out and ended up killing that big six point that was in the group. And uh, I was actually really surprised to see him bachelored up because, you know, it's like November, we were just in Arkansas hunting like running deer. And so, like, it just kind of caught me off guard, you know. And, uh, and I think they were they were still running together for a couple weeks after that. Mm-hmm. Like, we, like, we were seeing bucks in pairs uh, a pretty good bit. So... I don't know, man. It's it's hard for me to say. I'd say probably like a month before, roughly a month before they might start breaking well, up, but I, it depends on your area. I, th- I think it also depends on your age structure. Like, I've seen during the rut two young bucks together. Actually, yeah, yeah I see that. Two one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-year-old bucks. Like, that's I, I see that all the time. I don't think it's because – I think it's partly because, like, even though their testosterone is kind of going up, they're not really fighting it out, and they're just trying to figure out what's going on. For the yeah. most part, yeah. Uh, I think your older age class bucks are the ones to first peel off. Like again, you look back at when you shot uh, when you shot the six point, mm-hmm. ten point might have been with him. Okay, well, but, yeah, but yeah. he wasn't necessarily right there with that group. That like you know, as close yeah. as and all just the to preface, ones. if people missed that episode, that the big ten point on the club was running with the same with this bachelor group. They came out. And I watched him for about 15 minutes waiting for the 10 point, and it got to be the end of legal light. So I shot the big six point. But he kind of disappeared for a while. And I think, and yeah. he, he was the, probably the oldest buck in the group. And yeah. he just kind of split off. So I think it really happens. It, it'd be fun. It'd be interesting to kind of, you know, ask some other guys who have a lot more experience running trail cameras and really trying to figure out when this kind of happens in different areas. Cause especially in Alabama and a lot of the deep south, the, the rut's so all over the place. It's like what, when they might break up here where we're at, um, or like on some of our public that we hunt at, they run in December. Mm-hmm. But it can be completely different from other parts of Alabama where they might not be running running to the last week of January or mid January. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know I, that that's such an interesting question. But uh, I, I definitely think you ought to start seeing stuff. The second you start seeing sign being laid down, like a lot of sign, a lot of scrapes, a lot of rubs you're probably having some bucks really start to split off. And I think your older age class bucks are breaking off those bachelor groups a lot sooner mm-hmm. than your two and three year old deer. Yeah. Yeah. I for sure agree with that. And also, um, I don't know if this is, I'm curious if other people have seen this as well, where, um, it seems like the, the bigger, older bucks that I've ever gotten on camera just over the years, uh, aren't always with a bachelor group. Like even, yep. even in that early summer or late summer time frame where you're kind of starting to run cameras in like August or, or September. Um, I, I usually don't see him cause like the 10 point is, a, was a big buck, but we, I've showed him to several people now 
Um, and it, everyone thinks he's four and a half this mm-hmm. year. So he's not that old. I mean, yeah. he's just now kind of getting into his prime. And a lot of people would say he's not in his prime yet. You mm-hmm. know, five or six would be his prime. So uh, so he was with a group. But some of the bigger, again, older bucks, like velvet bucks I've had on camera, just on WMAs or like wherever I've been hunting, they've always been alone. You know, like the ones that you that are probably like that much older age class, they've always been by themselves. See, people say that, like, because I've heard a lot of other guys say, like, yeah, five, six-plus-year-old deer – he there's a good chance he may be by himself or maybe just with another buck. One thing you don't realize, and it, I don't think they're ever with when they get to that age, like a huge group of deer. I'm sure someone probably has a confirmed five and a half, six and a half year old buck with a bunch of other bucks, you know, in August, yeah, hanging out, um, off not on a, not on a corn pile, but like off a food source that's on a transition area and travel corridor. But the thing is, your camera's watching a very specific view. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Like there was a time, I don't know if you saw today, we had, we had one of our cell cameras go off and still mm-hmm. on a scrape mm-hmm. and there's a doe or like a, it might've been spike working the scrape. And if you didn't really pay attention, there's another deer standing way up on the ridge of behind it. Yeah. And then a couple minutes later, the other deer comes in, he's a little eight point, mm-hmm. but it's like, how often could you have a deer walk just behind the camera that's in a badger group and you just see one of them. You're like, Oh man, he's all by himself. But I mean, my thing is, unless you got transmitter collars on a whole batch of group, you don't, or on a whole bunch of bucks, you don't really know whether or not they're running by themselves. But I think probably at an older age class, we've had other podcast guests on the show talk about it does seem like they're a little bit more loners at that point. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think it has to depend on your area because I've talked to guys like, uh, I think Michael Perry's talked about this a little bit, catching bucks in the summer on camera. And it seems like a lot of those older bucks are like in pairs. Yep. Or maybe by themselves. But it's like, again, you never really know unless you're like you have your camera in a spot, and if they come through that spot, there is no other way to get past that camera. Yeah, I'll yeah. Uh, again, I would, I'd be really curious to hear other people's experiences on that. Like, write it in the comments, uh, email it to us. You know, whatever the case may be. Like, I, I'd love to hear other opinions on that. So, ooh, what? By the way, one segment I want to start doing on the podcast is reading a couple of YouTube reviews. Oh, or, or YouTube. Yeah, comments. yeah. We need to start doing that. Um, all right. Next up, this is from Dustin Higgins from Mississippi. He said, I hunt central Mississippi, and I killed a nice eight-point on November 25th. I decided to hunt a hardwood ridge that starts a in select cut pines. I sat on the ground and rattled very lightly for about 10 to 15 seconds. About five minutes later, I had a three-and-a-half-year-old buck and a mature buck almost run over me. They stopped in the hardwood bottom beside me where I made the shot. Is this indicating that they're in rut or just asserting dominance? I say that because I'm only seeing spikes messing with does lately. No heavy chasing that I'm that I've observed. So it sounds like maybe like kind of that early rut time frame. Like, um, I don't necessarily think that that would be like an indication that they're in the rut, but maybe like pre-rut. I mean, I would say because it seems like that rattling and grunting is most effective like right before it kind of breaks over into the rut. And the fact that you're seeing little bucks like spikes messing with does. It confirms that even more for me because those little bucks, like they don't know what they're doing and they start harassing the does, you know, way before they come into heat. So like, that's how I've always actually looked for like signs of the rut, like, like signs of what's to come. If I see small, like one and a half, two year old bucks, like cruising around and harassing does 
And if, you know, I'm hearing vocalizations or, or fighting or whatever, like those are finding where bucks are fighting, you know, like in a dirt road where they're, it's all kicked out and everything's destroyed. You found that this year, especially mm-hmm. you found a crazy buck fight, mm-hmm. um, like where, where two bucks had fought. But what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I just, I think it's early. I mean, uh, the podcast guests who we always kind of go back to when it comes to calling, just because we've had so many listener success stories come from it. I think it's episode like 290, Calling the Right Way with Richard Fott. Richard Fott's been on the podcast a whole bunch in the past. Um, He's from Arkansas. And he always talks about having, he always would talk about having a lot of success calling really, I mean, even early bow season, but specifically that pre-rut, I mean, super early rut stage where there's not very many does, if any does really come into heat. And then also kind of late rut, post-rut time period. Where like you catch that curiosity of that buck and it's not rattling hard. He rattles really, really light all season long. He's never smashed antlers, uh, but it's, it's more curiosity, like two bucks sparring, which could be a couple of things. It could be two bucks kind of messing around, just kind of you know, mm-hmm. two two and a half year old, three and a half year old bucks just kind of joking around a little bit, or it could be the beginning stage of a buck getting ready to go all out war with another buck. Uh, but again, I, I think just based off what you're saying, it's just early where you're at. But the thing is. Remember that. You need to remember that date, November 25th, yeah. and you need to be back in that same area next year doing the exact same thing again. Yes, okay? 100%. Because Mark I've, it on your calendar right it, now. Mark it on the calendar because I've got a spot, and after talking to some past podcast guests and also future podcast guests we're going to have on this summer talking about this, when you have success doing that, whether it's calling in deer or seeing like mature bucks during a certain window of time in a specific spot, you need to remember that and be back in there in those same areas doing yeah. the same thing again because <clears> – <throat> I called in uh, that my first buck, I ki- or my second buck I killed in Alabama this year, grunted him in 10 yards, shot him next day, did the exact same thing, called in another buck down the same trail out of the same tree. He stopped just inside the just inside the thick pines. I couldn't get a shot at him. I could see his brisket. I could see his neck. could see his legs. Could not see his head. Don't know how big he is. Acted like a mature buck. Don't Probably really know. I mean, you see his neckline come all the way down to his brisket. Probably a big deer. Don't really know. Wasn't going to ground check him because of antler point restrictions. But... Um, I know that date range specifically, I will be back in that tree doing yeah. the exact same thing in that spot and just seeing because for whatever reason, it seems like those bucks are coming through those areas and they're looking for something of that sort. Something that's catching their eye, catching their ear. Yeah. Um, that is telling them that, hey, something's going on, whether there's an early doe comes into heat, bucks are getting a little bit more aggressive, they're laying down a little bit more sign. They're checking some of these different bedding areas a little bit more before it really kicks off because those mature bucks are trying to find the first hot doe coming into heat. Mm-hmm. Now, they're five, six years old. They've been doing this for a few years. They know where those deer are coming into heat typically every single year, those first few does. So if you can find that pocket of activity, make sure you capitalize on on every year. Yep. Love it. All right. Last up, Matt B. from Alabama. New hunter question. I have around 40 acres to hunt all private, basically all hardwoods with about two acres worth of old ag land that is still kept mowed. One to three people hunting this property. It's about one and a half miles from the edge of a national forest. Uh, Between is pretty much all timber property. The property right behind me is leased to a hunting club. Onyx shows besides the clubs that surrounding me, uh, my neighbors have green fields planted I have three cameras out and have had them out for about two and a half years. I repeatedly see a nice eight point and many does. I understand to hunt the transition from my hardwood and pines on the property lines. Uh, my question is, what can I do to make the property more attractive to deer? I've got a 250-pound 250, 250 feeder, planted the old ag field with some plot seed, and have one mock scrape set up. 
Uh, I'm thinking about making a cistern or some kind of water catchment since there's no water uh, I can spot immediately near me. Anything else? Also, great podcast. I've learned and was able to take a dough in mid-November thanks to the info exactly like you guys put out. If y'all want to slap some knowledge on a mid-30s dude that's getting into his, uh, into this, uh, into this, wait, help me out here, counter some issues. Getting into this. Getting into this to counter some issues from the military, I'd be grateful. Sorry, I can't read. (laughs) That was super bad. Um. Uh, also, it'd be awesome to learn uh, what I'm looking for on public land, being this close to a certain public land place that I will not read off on this podcast. I would totally meet y'all to do some scouting. Public land is my next adventure. Using this property to kind of figure things out. Again, thanks for what y'all do. All right. All right, clarifying. He says he's got one to three other people that hunt it? Yes. All right, dude. If you got 40 acres and it's one to three other people hunting and you don't know when and how they're coming in there... That's pre- that is some high pressure. I guarantee the public next to your property you have access to might be way better. You can't run corn out there. Yeah. I understand. You can't plant food plots. I understand. Yeah. But you're going to find a lot less pressure and you're going to be able to hunt a lot more of those transition areas and probably have a lot more success and actually see more deer mm-hmm. because you're going to be able not necessarily even worry about getting away from people, but there's just going to be less people on, on, on a big piece of public land like that compared to a 40-acre chunk that has, I don't know how you have an understanding of one to three people, but if there's... You know, upwards, say, if it's just you and another guy, two to, uh, on the upper end, four people hunting 40 acres, that is a ton of pressure. You can have all the corn and everything. With the guys that we've had on the podcast that's had the most success hunting small properties, number one, they don't hunt it very much. They do like what Alan Summerford has talked about, and we I find his podcast number real quick. This has been a really good one for you to go back and listen to, um, where he's hunted this property for quite a while, you know, 8, 10 years, 15 years now. And he knows, based, based on running truck cameras, he's got food pot on the property, thickets and everything. He's kind of made on the property for bedding. But he uses it as a sanctuary, except for about a five-day window of period of time, a whole season. So he's not hunting that property other than about five to six days, uh, like that window of time, and that's when he hunts. And when typically he does it, he either sees the biggest buck on the property and can shoot it or not, just depending on whether or not it's not, you know, it's what he's looking for. Or he's going to have some sort of an opportunity, okay? Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing for hunting small properties. Because I did this. I had a permission on a small property that I hunted. We hunted the absolute crap out of it. I'm talking about there was not a more high-pressure piece of private land in the state of Alabama, I guarantee. Okay? (laughs) Those deer knew what trees we wanted to get into, knew how we were coming in every single time. And funny enough, my brother still killed a pretty nice buck on the place. But um, that was late post rut, the whole nine yards, and you know, caught, finally caught a buck coming through there. But the, the situation is, if you can, if it's you and other guys on the property, it's going to be very hard for you guys to kind of work together more than likely, unless you're all on the same page, of only hunting it during a very specific window of time based off daylight activity on cameras and when bucks are actually using that property. Because a buck's not going to stay on 40 acres. A doe's not going to stay on 40 acres. Um, so it's going to be very difficult, especially if you can't do any kind of ha- actual habitat work, cutting some trees down, building some cover, having some more food, mm-hmm. not outside of your bait pile, your corn feeder, you know, food plot, stuff like that. Um, it's going to be tough. So my recommendation, and Andrew, I'll get you your take on it, is I'd just start exploring some of that public land, leave the feeder at the house, can't, again, you can't run corn on public, and just go out there and literally go with the mindset. Even if you're not going to hunt it next year, you know, this 2024, 2025 season, go get you a couple cameras, go put them out there and some sign, focus specifically on big scrapes, just kind of get some inventory and just 
at least do that if you're not going to actually hunt the place mm-hmm. and, and have an idea of when and how bucks are coming through those areas. And then maybe the following year, you decide, okay, I'm going to go try this public out. I agree with everything you just said. Um, the water thing would be kind of intriguing if, again, there wasn't the other hunter pressure on the property because the the thing about the other hunter pressure on the property is like that makes – for me, at least, that would kind of that would kind of kill my motivation to do anything like of substance out there. Like if I was gonna try to work, I don't know who owns the land, but like try to work with the landowner to maybe like get some bedding cover on it. Because if you say it's mostly hardwoods and then an ag field that they mow, sounds like you you don't have a lot of cover. So like if I could control the property, I'd want to maybe add some cover, maybe put some water in. Like that could definitely be helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the fact that the, there's other people hunting it like that. And also, you say you got a, a eight point coming in repeatedly on camera. I would be interested in hunting the property like whenever he's daylighting. We keep talking about annual patterns on this podcast. So, like, if the week of like November 20th, uh, that, that buck just starts showing up in daylight and no one killed him, then, or even if someone did kill him, the, that same week every year, that's the week I'd be interested in hunting it. But to make the most of the property, like you said, Jacob, I would I would learn the other hunters. Like, how are they walking into the property? What trees are they hunting? How are the deer possibly avoiding them? And uh, and take that approach to it and be instead of making it like, oh, this is your property and this is where you hunt. Make it more surgical, like where you're like, these are the days where I go out there and I hunt it on very specific days in a very specific way. And then other than that. Go, go hunt the public. Kind of like we were talking about yeah. uh, earlier. You know, you don't want to bounce around too much, but at the same time, a lot of guys with small properties like that kind of work themselves into a corner because they got an eight point on camera, and the other three guys, you know, know about the same deer, and so they're like, "Well, I got to go. I got to go this Saturday, otherwise, one of those guys is going to kill it." Or I just got to put my time in and hunt it and hunt it and hunt it, and uh, and you're kind of making the property worse when you do that, especially mm-hmm. when you're habitual and you do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, so I would, I would take a, a more like strategic approach to hunting the property and just take what you've learned with your cameras. I'm assuming if it's 40 acres, you've probably walked the whole thing by now. I mean, if you haven't for sure, walk the whole thing, find out where the scrapes are. If you got any scrapes on the property and, and find those two or three good spots, like on 40 acres, you might have two or three like good spots. You might only have one good spot yeah. and, and figure out where that is. And, uh, if nobody else is hunting it. Don't put a ladder stand up. Don't put a ground blind up. Don't put flagging tape up. Don't put a feeder up. Don't even put a trail camera up unless you're going to hang it way up in a tree because I wouldn't want any of the other guys, again, assuming that you're not working with them and mm-hmm. it's like kind of competitive, I wouldn't want any of the other guys to know exactly where that spot's at. Yep. And that's actually one thing I was talking to Cody about, about the one-sticking thing, is I, I really like one-sticking, and this is something I didn't even think about until I started doing it, because there is absolutely no trace that I ever hunted that tree. There's very small little scratches where the where the stick bites in, but it's not like a climber where you're chewing that tree up all the way and anyone can see like where you climb that tree. Yeah. Because I don't want like I've made the case at the club, there's some guys in the club who are hunting all over where that ten point is. But they're hunting like not far at all from where they probably could kill him, but they're accessing it wrong and they're facing the wrong direction in most of their setups. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't want to go skin up a pine tree, climbing it two or three times in the kill spot where that guy can go walking through there and see that and be like, oh, this is where he's hunting, you know? And and then, you know, start hunting my spot. Not my spot. I don't own the spot. But, you know, I'm just trying to be secretive about the stuff that I've worked hard to figure out. Yeah. 
So, what so, are, what's so, your so, so instead of having the tree skinned up, looking like you know you had it climb up and down, it looks like a black panther came through and just sharpened his claws. Oh, wildcat came climbing up that thing. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, so the episode you need to go back and listen to is episode uh, four seventy six. It came out last May, and that was with uh, Alan Summerford. The title is "Chasing Southern Giants" with Alan Summerford. So, in that episode again, four seventy six. Uh, episode 476, he goes in detail about the success he's had both on large properties and small properties and how he hunts them differently. Um, and I think anybody out there that's hunting a small property, and I say a small property, like less than 75 acres probably. I mean, almost maybe less than 100 of what you should do because I kind of told Anthony a little bit about this episode too, and he he likes Alan because Alan came down to the property and walked the property. It's like if you can – have another area to go hunt where there's a hunting club, a piece of public land, something else. And you just kind of save that property until like the, the timing when you have a little annual history on the property with like certain time frames, date ranges that bucks are daylighting, but also kind of watching cameras and seeing when activity really starts spiking during daylight and then go in there strategically hunt. You're going to have a lot more success killing a lot bigger deer. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We're going to wrap it up with this because we got somewhere to be. Uh, we got one new review that we're going to read. This is from Byron Fields. He said, new to hunting, five stars. Uh, hi, my name is Byron from North Carolina. Never been hunting in my life, but I always wanted to go, but never had anyone to take me or show me how. Uh, listening to y'all is helping me learn how to get started. Byron, if you're listening right now, let me tell you, you better tune in on Monday. Yep. It's a fantastic episode for, for a guy like you who's just now getting into it. Very fundamental, very foundational. Uh, just This is a fun episode, man. I'm excited to release it. So. And some hot tips to how to get into turkey hunting. If you don't, you never turkey hunting. And, or just uh, any kind of hunting. Or any, any kind of hunting. And, and listen, you're going to want to go, if you don't have private land, you're going to want to go find some animals on some public <laughs> land, and it will come in handy for Monday's episode. That's okay. right. That's so right. just take that note. Uh, appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. Appreciate everybody watching the podcast. Appreciate everybody that's buying all the merchandise. Uh, we get some new hats in stock, or working on getting some more hats in stock. Uh, again, get our order of our chocolate chip, uh, brown on brown, actually brown and dark gray, um, patch hats, which are a sweet hat. So again, if you guys want to support the podcast, one way you can do that is just go buy some apparel from us. We really appreciate that. It's awesome getting photos from you all, both with listener success photos and really just photos in general of y'all wearing all the hats. And also like we went to NWTF convention in Nashville, seeing a lot of you guys wearing the hats around on the show floor. So uh, we've got a lot of other expos that we're going to be going to, like the Eco Wild Expo in Mobile, Alabama in May. Yep. We've got the Mobile Hunters Expo in June in uh, Dalton, Georgia. And then we also have the World Deer Expo going on in August in Birmingham, Alabama. July. Oh, why do I keep saying it's August? It, it was August a couple years ago. I don't know. Is uh, it back in July? Okay, yeah, well, it's in July. July. I'm sorry, everybody. Everybody yeah. in, in uh, what are you doing? Birmingham area. But anyways, we're going to have apparel there. Also going to be coming out with some new stuff as well. Oh, we got some new hats that are going to be coming out. They're going to look awesome. Yeah, we got some stuff that if you want some of the new products, you might want to come to one that expos because that's where they're going to be launched at. So yeah, they buddy. sell at the expo. Sorry, everybody else. You yeah, that's come, right. You comes to the show. You better get them while they're hot. You have to wait until we get some more in. But anyways, appreciate all the support. Appreciate everybody watching watching and listening and we'll catch y'all back here on monday's episode from southern outdoors and podcast you're not going to want to miss it in kicking off turkey season content and uh other than that just remember one thing y'all stay safe. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the mobile hunters expo it was an incredible event a bunch of you guys came out to meet us 
We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool, I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple of years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.